just a couple of things of a preliminary kind. I, um, there was a familiar face right up here, right there in that chair. I hope you'll say hi to Gwendy after the service. She, um, she told me she was so excited to be here this morning, which just makes me want to say, let's not preach, let's just listen to some flute music. But maybe you're thinking the same thing, you know, I don't know. And Gwendy's mom is here as well, and so I, I, I trust you'll say hi to her. And next to Gwendy's mom is Vanessa Velasquez, who is auditioning us. She plays the flute. Oh, yeah. So she's auditioning us this week, and uh, she's real interested in uh, being a part of our little ensemble. Uh, she is a student at Vero Beach High School and was recommended to us by Matt Stott, and uh, so uh, please say hi to Vanessa as well and be really nice to her so she'll want to come back. Okay? It's great to have both of you here, and I don't know where those other three Banditos went, but I trust they'll come back in. And then just just a comment about what we're doing here. Um, we are talking about this this business of the leading of the Spirit, um, and and we we came to this last week as we looked uh, again at Romans chapter eight. And. What I uh, want to do this week and next is ask you to think with me about what it in fact means to be led by the Spirit and how the Spirit does in fact lead his people. How does he do that? How does the Spirit lead his people? Not the fact that he does it, but how does he do it? How does that happen? Uh, and I want to read for you as we as we get started this morning just just a couple of lines from this paragraph that I read to you last week from an article by B.B. Warfield, which appears in a collection of uh, theological essays uh, that he wrote. B.B. Warfield is um, was a, a professor of uh, biblical theology at Princeton Seminary a, a century ago. Um, a wonderful story, something for you to, to know, uh, someone uh, you should know about. Um, but I, I just want to read um, just a short little passage from this article uh, by Warfield, uh, in which Warfield seeks to describe for us what it is that the Apostle Paul is saying to us here. And let me just remind you, uh, something I said last week, and that is that this phrase, the leading of the Spirit, has, has suffered cruelly <laughs> at our hands. Um, what Paul is talking about is something quite different from what we uh, typically think of when we think of this phrase, the leading of the Spirit. We tend to think of these subjective promptings, these, uh, these inclinations, these impulses. We say the Spirit led us to do this or led us to do that. But what Warfield points out in this article is that the term which Paul employs here means something quite different from that. And rather than read this, let me just summarize it. What Warfield is suggesting by the particular term that is used in this text 
is not God hinting at things, suggesting at things, God not even commanding that we do things, but God, in fact, exerting his influence and his power by the person of the Spirit, in effect, to lay hold of us and take us by the hand and lead us in the way that a parent would lead a child. Now, what Warfield goes on to talk about here in this article is some of the implications of that. And that's kind of where we want to go with this. And and the first and sort of dominant implication of this, as Warfield unpacks this idea in this article, is this. The person who is being led is not being carried. The person who is being led is exerting himself or herself, is expending energy in the way that a child being led by a parent would exert himself or herself, sometimes in cooperation with the parent, sometimes resisting the parent. But the parent has hold of the child and will never let go of the child. And if the child is wise, the child will exert himself or herself in concert with the leading of the parent and not contradicting or working against the leading of the parent. That's the very clear meaning of the word and implication of the word that Paul uses here. We are being led by the Spirit, having been laid hold of by the Spirit. God, by His Spirit, is exerting His influence and His power, a power before which we bow, a power against which ultimately we have no power, which is a wonderful thing, friends. Can I just, can I just do this little sidebar and... and, and and engage you a little bit and and toy with you a bit. When people come to me and they want to talk with me about free will, the first thing I want to ask them is, why in God's name would you want it? Why would you want it? Look what Adam did with it when he had it. No, friends. What you must understand, what I must understand and continue to wrestle with, though it's profoundly mysterious to us, is that it is an extraordinarily gracious, merciful, kind, and loving thing that God would lay hold of those who do not want to be laid hold of. And would so lay hold of them and so work in their hearts and so incline himself to lead them that they would, by that process, in fact, be changed so as to want to be laid hold of and led and changed. It is a glorious, as someone pointed out to me last week after the sermon, it is a glorious Liberty to be the slave of Almighty God. That's what this word means. 
implies and how it applies to you as a particular Christian. Now, in the midst of that, in the context of that, what we're wrestling with and what we want to ask ourselves about is how am I involved in this? If by the Spirit I put to death the deeds of the body, I will live for all who are led by the Spirit, that is, all who have been laid hold of by the Spirit, who will never, ever be let go of by the Spirit, who must walk with the Spirit, as Paul puts it in Galatians 5. How is it that I participate in this? What is going on? What do I do? How does this work? And that's what we want to think about and look at this week and next. Now, what we're talking about as we think about this is what the church historically has referred to as the means of grace. The means of grace. What are the means which the Spirit, in fact, employs? Paul says uh, in verse 13, If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What are the means by which the Spirit, by which I, in concert with the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body? There are specific things to say about this. The church has wrestled with this through the centuries. How is it that the Spirit puts to death the deeds of the body? How is it that I put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit? You see, there's... There's a there's mystery in this. I mean, we can read over these verses and think, I have no idea what he's talking about. I can't understand what he's talking about and pass over them and want to get someplace else. And we can't. We can't. And it's precisely because we have a difficult time understanding this and because there are some things about us and about the world in which we live that I have to point out to us, some things we have to think about together if we're going to begin to understand, really get hold of and embrace what it is that the Apostle Paul is talking about. So this becomes a little sidebar, if you will, a fairly lengthy sidebar, but an incredibly important sidebar in consideration of these 13th and 14th verses. Now, a number of years ago, a fellow named George Barna, uh, who is a, um, a demographer, a researcher, writes books about trends in America related to Christianity and to the church, George Barna published a book entitled The Frog in the Kettle. Some of you may know the book, may have read the book. And what Barna was doing in the book was attempting to understand those influences which have wormed their way into the church and settled in the life of the church to such an extent that the church ends up actually being gutted, actually ends up being detrimentally influenced because of the presence of those things. The frog in the kettle, you know the story, right? The frog, you put a frog in a kettle of water, slowly turn up the heat. The frog doesn't know that it's getting hotter. And before the frog knows it, the frog has boiled to death. The church is the frog. 
The water is the culture in which the church finds itself. The kettle is the world. And the concern is, what are those things influencing and shaping us of which we're not aware because the temperature is so slowly rising that we don't discern and detect them? Millions of things. Millions of things. But there are a couple of them that I continue to believe are massively important for us in this church to understand. Churches in other places have other issues. But these, it seems to me, are a couple of issues of which we have to be aware and have to be mindful and about which we have to be sober. Let me put it to you in this way. Let me ask you a question, then I'll give you the answer, and I'll suggest to you the two reasons for the answer that I give. When you gather here on Sunday mornings, do you expect anything? Do you expect anything? When you gather here on Sunday mornings, do you expect to encounter the living, reigning, and glorious Lord Jesus Christ? Do you come here with the expectation that when you step inside this place and the announcements are finished and Tom plays that little musical transition, do you expect that on the other side of that transition, the horizontal business is finished and the vertical business is become, begun, that you have moved across a threshold from the realm of space and time into the realm of the infinite and the eternal. And do you have the expectation that Jesus will come here, will abide here, will work here in the midst of us, not as a passive observer, but as the principal actor initiating and engaging each one of us? Do you have the expectation that what you sang this morning in hymn number 529, becomes in fact a prayer. Love divine, all loves excelling. Joy of heaven to earth come down. Fix in us thy humble dwelling. All thy faithful mercies crown. Jesus, thou art all compassion. Pure, unbounded love thou art. Visit us with thy salvation. Enter every trembling heart. Trembling hearts come here. When you bring your trembling heart, do you have any expectation that Jesus will come here and enter that trembling heart? Breathe, oh, breathe thy loving spirit into every troubled breast. Let us all in thee inherit. Let us find the promised rest. Take away the love of sinning. Alpha and Omega be end of faith as its beginning. Set our hearts at liberty. When you come here on Sunday mornings, and friends, you've you got to understand, this is about me. It's not about you. 
I'm asking myself these questions when I come here on Sunday mornings. Do I come out of force of habit? Do I come because somebody told me I needed to come? Do I come because I think God is going to like me better if I come? Or do I come with an expectation that something, something is going to happen here? Now, I'm going to answer for all of us. And I'm going to suggest that the range of answers is on a continuum between absolutely not and absolutely yes. That we all are on a continuum between those poles and that for most of us, most of us, the answer would be, well, kind of, or well, I know I should think that way, but I really don't. And let me suggest to you that there are a couple of reasons, a couple of reasons why that is my answer and why I think that is our answer. And they are these. And these are influences of our culture, the surrounding culture upon us, and they are influences of which we have to be aware and which we must resist, and it is hard. Here are the two reasons. Number one, if I can't understand it, it isn't really true. If I can't understand it, it isn't really true. If I can't understand how Jesus can be here, really, the primary, principal, first person in a gathering of worship, then he must not be here. And what happens, folks, is that our minds which God has given us and by which we engage the world around us and which we are to use to his glory to understand him in this world in which we find ourselves, our minds having been influenced by a culture which says, if you can't understand it, it isn't real, our minds resist. They resist. If I can't understand it, it isn't real, and I effectively Dismiss it. And here's the second thing. If I can't see it, can't hear it, can't smell it, can't taste it, can't touch it, it isn't real. Which is to say, if I can't measure it, weigh it, hold it in my hands, it isn't real, it isn't true. The technical names for these things are rationalism and empiricism. And they are profoundly influential in our culture and they gut the vitals of the life of the church. They chip away at the inward soul of Christian experience. I'm going to give you some examples. And I'm going to give you some examples from the scriptures. And I'm only giving us these examples, giving them to you, giving them to me, because I want to illustrate how deep is my own conviction that my mind tends to resist 
what the scriptures want to affirm with all of their heart and all of their soul. Let's begin where we've been in Romans chapter 8. All people, all people, all human beings are citizens of two realms. They are citizens of an earthly kingdom and they are citizens of a spiritual kingdom. All human beings, men, women, and children. We happen to be citizens in this earthly respect of the United States of America. But that is very, very small and very, very insignificant when contrasted with the unseen and spiritual realms which we all in this room inhabit. Every one of us in this room is a citizen not only of this earthly realm, but a citizen of an unseen realm. And that is infinitely more real and infinitely more significant than any national or earthly identity or citizenship. And those realms are the realms of the flesh and the spirit. All people are either in the flesh or in the spirit. All people are citizens either of the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light, the kingdom of death the kingdom of life, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of Jesus. Every once in a while, somebody will ask me, and I, you know me, I'm not here to pick a fight. Every once in a while, someone will say to me, are you one of those born-again Christians? And again, without picking a fight, I will say to you, That is the only kind of Christian there is. That is the only kind of Christian that there is. If you have not been born again, and I say this pastorally, lovingly, politely, if you have not been born again, you are not a Christian. That is what the Bible teaches. If you are not born again, you are in the realm of the flesh. You are in the realm of death and darkness. You are in the realm of Satan. If you have been born again, and I trust and believe with all of my heart as best I am able to know these things, given what I know about most of you, I trust that everyone in this room is no longer a citizen of that realm, but is in fact a citizen of the new realm, having been born of the Spirit, by the Spirit, transferred by the Spirit from the realm of death and darkness, the realm of Satan, into the realm of life and light and Jesus Christ. That is a work of the Spirit. It is an unseen work. It is a work which I can't quantify. It is a work that I cannot fully understand with my brain. But it is what makes a person a Christian. 
And if you, this is the second thing, the first thing is there are these two realms and everybody is a citizen in one or the other. If you are born again, then you were a citizen of that realm. You were in the flesh. You were in the world. But you are now a citizen of this other realm, the realm of the spirit. This is your real and most truly true identification. If you are a Christian this morning, you are in the Spirit. And that is your most truly true identification. I will tell you this, that for everybody in this room, inside of a hundred years, it is the only thing that will matter. For every single one of us, from Collins McShay to the oldest among us, unless he lives to be more than 101 years old, which he could. If you are born again, you are a citizen and no longer of the realm of the flesh, but of the spirit. And what is it that you can understand? And what is it that you can measure? What is it that you can see and taste and touch and feel? It is this physical material world. Don't you see how difficult it is for us to embrace and engage and understand these things? The truest thing about you, if you are a Christian, is that you have been transferred And made a citizen of the realm of the spirit. And so that means the third thing is true. You are connected to. You are inserted into. You are immersed in. You are surrounded by a reality. Though unseen, which is more real and more true than the chairs upon which you sit, or the air you breathe, or the sunsets that you watch. More true. Now, from Romans chapter 8, let me continue to give you just a handful of examples. It pains me. To have to do this so quickly. Some of us are studying the Revelation. I wish that I could read Revelation 1 verses 9 through 20. A passage of scripture which shows us the Jesus whom John saw in the first eight verses of the first chapter of the Revelation. Jesus glorified. Jesus the king of the kings of the earth. Jesus manifesting the beauty and loveliness and overwhelming majesty and righteousness of his Father. Jesus, in Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20, is walking in the midst of the lampstands. And the seven lampstands represent not only the literal seven churches to which those letters later are addressed, But those seven lampstands, seven being the number of fullness and completeness, that number seven refers to the whole church. And Jesus, risen, glorified, expressing the loveliness and beauty and majesty of his Father, a holiness and glory which causes John to fall as a dead man, 
Jesus is walking among the lamp stands. Jesus, my friends, is walking here, through here, among us in the midst of this, his church. Seven times, every time in each of those letters, there is the first phrase which Jesus utters as he speaks to his church. I know I know, I know this about you, I know this about you, I know this about you, I know this about you. How does he know? Does he know because he has good eyesight and can see a long way like some kind of glorified Superman? No, he knows because he, by his spirit, is present in the midst of his church. He is here and he knows. He knows me. He knows you. He knows us. He knows what is to be commended. He knows what needs to be corrected. He knows where he is taking us. He knows the promises that he has for us. He is here. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. I have to read these for you. May not get any farther than this passage. Hebrews chapter 2. I'm sorry, verses 9 through 12. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in referring to Jesus. But we see him. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. How do we see him? We see him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin, and that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Verse 12, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Let me tell you, folks, Hebrews chapter 2 is describing a reality. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, is describing Jesus. I will tell of your name. It describes Jesus telling of the glorious name of his Father, telling of that name to his brothers and sisters in the midst of the great congregation, he will sing the praise of his father and your father. When you go to a church someplace and somebody refers to the worship leader, who in heaven's name are they talking about? Do you see? In Hebrews chapter 2, a picture of a present reality. 
Jesus who walks in the midst of his church, who knows us in sweetness, in beauty, in loveliness, in grace, comes into the midst of the assembly of his people. And he speaks to his people of the Father's name. And then he leads his people in the praise of that name. Jesus is in the midst of the assembly. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. Though there are a million passages that we could look at, I'll just leave you with this one. Ephesians 2. I think I said 3, but it's Ephesians 2. Beginning at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, the wall that separated Jew and Gentile, the wall that separates husbands and wives, parents and children, the wall that separates the races, the wall that separates the cultures. He has broken down that wall in his flesh by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby exterminating the hostility. And then verse 17, he came and preached peace to you. He came and preached peace to you. Who? Jesus. Jesus came and preached peace to these Ephesians. He came because he is present. He is real. He is vital. He is in the midst of his people by the power of his spirit. And so when someone presumes to preach, when someone presumes to stand in the presence of God's people, before anything else, he must understand. That there is somebody else here who has initiated the whole thing, who sustains the whole thing, present in the midst of the whole thing. And at the end of the day, he, by God's grace, is the one who preaches himself. God save the church from preaching sermons. God, give grace to the church, this church, to us, to me, to us together, that Jesus, every Sunday morning, might come here and preach himself. Because he is here. Every once in a while, every once in a while, someone will come up to me and say something about a sermon And I will say, I lost track of time. I hope I didn't go too far. And that person will say, it seemed like five minutes. I had a friend who was deathly sick with the flu living in London. 
at a temperature of 105, his friends came to him and said, we've got to go hear Martin Lloyd-Jones preach at Westminster Chapel. He's in town. He's only here for this Friday night service. Let's go hear him preach. My friend had a temperature of 105. It was winter in London. They dragged him out of his bed. They bundled him up in clothes. They took him to Westminster Chapel. Lloyd-Jones began to preach, and he lost all sense of himself. He did not know it. It had been a 50-minute sermon. It seemed like 50 seconds. One time a woman came up to me after a sermon. She looked me in the face and she said, Who was that up there? My friends, we will never, never begin to scratch beneath the surface of Romans 5 verses Romans 8 verses 13 and 14 we will never be able to scratch beneath the surface these things will simply be prepositions in our heads ideas in our heads the right theology if we don't begin to wrestle with this idea that there is considerably more going on in us and around us and particularly in this gathering than meets the eye. This is where heaven and earth meet, friends. This is where those who have died are buried, but whose souls are in the presence of Jesus, the spirits of just men made perfect. This is the place to which those spirits, along with the glory of heaven that surrounds the throne of the enthroned Jesus, this is the place to which that assembled company comes so that Jesus, our brother, might speak of God's name to us and lead us in the praise of his Father and our Father. We will never get beyond the surface of Romans chapter 8 until we have begun to wrestle with what it is, in fact, that is going on when Paul tells us that those who are led by the Spirit, laid hold of, transferred, kept, sustained, guided, when resisting, when cooperating, relentlessly, never letting go of us, We'll never begin to understand what's going on there if we don't begin to wrestle with the fact that there is a lot going on here. God, give us grace to do that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me, upon us, Help us to see things we can't see. Believe things we cannot believe. Believe things we struggle desperately to believe. Persevere in believing things we have come to believe, but which so easily slip between our fingers. Jesus, 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 precious Jesus, have mercy upon us. And come and stay among us and walk among us and do in us, through us, by your spirit, in the gospel, what needs to be done. 
We pray in your name. Amen.